week by week from the pick of new material, from the pages of best-selling novels, from the theater of Broadway and London, and the sound stages of Hollywood, will parade the most remarkable figures ever known. CBS gives you suspense. The two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to our very first episode of Suspense, officially. Last week we presented some episodes, and the first one being the audition show from a show called Forecast in 1940. Well, now we jump forward to 1942, and they decided to actually pursue the series. This is the first episode in the series, and it is from exactly 75 years ago today, which is pretty cool. The episode is called The Burning Court, and it stars Charles Ruggles and Julie Hayden. What's cool is in this very first episode of Suspense, they do something that they would do time and time again, which is take a comedy actor and put him in the more serious role on Suspense. Now... It doesn't surprise me that they're doing this. It surprises me that they're doing it on the very first episode. That really shows what they thought they could do, or maybe Charles Ruggles was the biggest actor they could get, and they just said, hey, we get a comedy actor, that's fine, let's do this. So anyway, the episode is going to be about, uh, it says, during a party one evening, a mystery writer gives away the name of a guest who happens to be a murderer. All the rest of the guests are surprised. And I won't... uh, go into more than that other than to say it takes place that has to do with the past, the present, at least the present in 1942, and just a really interesting story. I hope you're going to enjoy that episode. What's funny with these episodes is sometimes our early episodes have better sound than the later episodes. So uh, that'll be the first episode that we play, a fitting opening to suspense for sure. The episode we're going to play after that, we're going to jump ahead five years, and when we jump ahead five years, the episode is going to be called Stand In, and it stars Hans 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 Conried, who I just love, and who is in so many fantastic radio shows. I was just listening to an interview of him today, deciding whether I was going to play it or not, and... uh, I don't know if I will, I couldn't find anything specifically about suspense in the interview, but just hearing him talk about all the performances he's been in, all the wonderful shows, um, just show after show after show, he'll five years in this show, four years in this show, uh, guest appearances all over the place on so many radio shows, and television shows, and movies, just an amazing, amazing career. We also have June Havoc in that episode. June Havoc writes the introduction for Martin Graham's Jr.'s book called Suspense that he wrote probably like 15 years ago or more, maybe almost 20 years ago. But it is a great book if you want to be able to read about the different episodes of Suspense and who's in them and so forth. I use it all the time for 
my presentations here. And like I say, Jude Havoc writes the intro. I'll read a little bit of her intro to you. It says, there was a time in the 1940s and 50s, and even early 1960s, when fine drama was available not only in the theaters and on the silver screen, but over the airwaves in the fledgling medium of television, and particularly its older sister, radio. Programs such as Theater Guild of the Air, the Philip Morris Playhouse, and of course, Suspense, regularly employed the greatest stars of the stage and films. After enjoying overnight success, Impaled Joey on Broadway, I began a bi-coastal career in which I commuted between Broadway plays and Hollywood films. It was in the mid-1940s I pursued this performing life, and I first had the privilege of acting with William Spears' crack ensemble, which included Lloyd Nolan, Loring Tuttle, Elliot Lewis, Kathy Lewis, Jeanette Nolan, John McIntyre, Agnes Moorhead, and Whit Bis Bissell as sort of um, permanent repertory company, and everyone from Humphrey, Gobart, Humphrey Bogart, John Garfield, Greer Garson, Charles Lawton, Claude Rains, and Richard Whitmark. I mean, just about every star at every studio. That's because Bill Spear wrote so concisely and cleverly and directed with such a devilish imagination and produced with such uh, finesse that Suspense was ever and always one of the most prestigious shows of the so-called Golden Age of Radio. That's pretty cool. And uh, Spear being the what writer, director, producer of so much of Suspense, showrunner, uh, he was also, of course, married to June Havoc. June Havoc, you might also recognize the name as the sister to Gypsy Rose Lee, who uh, was the great burlesque performer, and of course, um, who the musical was based on, and so forth. The um, the stage play, anyway. And uh, June Havoc was, well, actually, Gypsy Rose Lee was the writer of that as well, which is pretty cool. Um, anyway, moving on, we have. Besides her, in this same episode, this episode of Stand-In from um, 1947, ten years, five years after the first episode of Suspense, not only has Hans Conrad and June Havoc, but it also has Kathy Lewis, Elliot Lewis, and Wally Marr in it. Just an all-star cast on that one. Then we jump ahead five years from there, and we get a chance to spend a little more time with... Uh, William Conrad and Byron Kane, Jack Crucian, Charlotte Lawrence, Elliot Lewis, um, Julius Matthews, just a whole stellar cast in Concerto for the Killer and Eyewitnesses. That should be fun, uh, with Elliot Lewis being the main performer. Uh, but it's neat to get a chance to hear William Conrad as well. Then William Conrad, of course, is is uh, Marshall Dillon, but we can't go on without jumping five years into the future and having an episode featuring Parley Bear, who, of course, is Chester in Gunsmoke, and Kenny Delmar, who is known, probably best known to radio fans, 
one being a famous announcer, but also being the voice of um, Senator Cleghorn uh, from for the Fred Allen Show. So you get a chance to hear him as well in Trial by Jury. And then we go, lastly, we go five years into the future from that point in time to the very end of the suspense run, and we pick up from exactly 20 years to the day after the first episode of Suspense, we get uh, the episode about a lunatic, and the it's called The Lunatic Hour, and uh, we'll see how much you enjoy that final episode from, um, not the final episode, but an episode from the final season of Suspense. I hope you enjoy all our Suspense presentations, and... Uh, tell me if you like having me present all five. I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep this up. We'll see. Uh, but uh, So we have them from 75 years ago, 70 years ago, 65 years ago, 60 years ago, 55 years ago. Is that right? And I think that's it. So anyway, without further ado, here is a good, what is this, two and a half hours, I think, of suspense maybe maybe not quite that long but anyway enjoy suspense i'm delighted to bring you the 75th anniversary and we'll be back next week for some more suspense the columbia network takes pleasure in bringing you suspense Suspense. Stories from the world's great literature of pure excitement. A new series frankly dedicated to your horrification and entertainment. Week by week, from the pick of new material, from the pages of best-selling novels, from the theater of Broadway and London, and the sound stages of Hollywood, will parade the most remarkable figures ever known. CBS gives you... Suspense. Tonight's presentation is one of the finest of the contemporary stories of mystery and terror. John Dixon Carr's famous novel, The Burning Court. glass of sherry by the fireside of a beautiful suburban home. What could be more comforting? You're an admirable host, Mr. Depart, and it's really a shame our first meeting is under such a cloud. It's also a shame I have so little time to tell you which one of your guests here ah, murdered your uncle last week. <laughs> Now, let's see now. I believe we're all here. Your wife, your friend, Mr. Stevens, Captain Brennan. Yes, and incidentally, yourself. Just who did you say you were? Well, no wonder you've had so much difficulty with the case, Captain. My name is Cross, Godin Cross, the writer. As a matter of fact, it's because of my just-completed book, Poisoning Throughout the Ages, that I happen to be here now. 
And Ted Stevens there happens to be a member of the firm which publishes my work. I'd never seen him until tonight, but I've been told what happened. This afternoon, he began reading my manuscript for the first time on the train. The commuter's train, which every afternoon deposits him safely and soundly here in Crispin. I imagine he was halfway home by the time he finished the first chapter. Then he turned a page. Attached to the following leaf was a picture. And looking at it, the young man stiffened suddenly and all but cried out his shock. It was a picture of a young woman. And under it had been printed Famous Poisoner Marie Dobre, 1676. Ted Stevens was looking at a picture of his own wife. Imagine, imagine his 25-year-old wife in 17th century costume. The face, the features, even a wistfulness of expression were identical. Even the name, Dobre was his wife's maiden name. But no, 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 that was ridiculous. This woman in the picture was, well, one of his wife's ancestors. Yes, that was it, that was it. Simply an amazing family resemblance. Marie would be waiting for him at the station and he'd have to tell her about it. He wondered why, however, she'd never told him about Oh, well, but you don't discuss such an ancestor, do you? Ted Stevens glanced down at the chapter to which the picture had been attached. It was entitled, The Affair of the Non-Dead Woman. Hello, Ted. Stevens was almost jolted from his seat. It was Dr. Weldon, professor of English at the college, an old friend of his. Quickly, he thrust the picture beneath the manuscript and moved over. Hi, I didn't see you, Doc. Oh, here, have a, have a seat. Oh, I thought maybe you were giving me the, uh, what do they call it? The brush off? Oh, no, I... Uh, say, as a matter of fact, Doc, you're the one man I do want to see. Yeah? Very flattering. Remember those discussions we used to have about murders? <laughs> Better than bridge any time. Well, I got the idea that you'd made sort of a hobby out of the old cases, the historical ones. Well, I've studied quite a number of them, yes. Ever hear of a woman named Marie Dobre? Marie Dobre? Marie Dobre. Oh, yes. Uh, th that was her maiden name, of course. One of the finest specialists in arsenic poisoning you could ever hope to find. Oh, we're almost at our station, Ted. Let's get to the door. Yes, a real charmer Marie was. Must have disposed of half a hundred husbands, lovers, suitors, and just plain friends before she was caught. Uh, what happened to her, Doc? She was beheaded and burned. Crispin! Oh, absurd, laughable. Ted Stevens kept saying this to himself, and yet what he knew was a foolish dread followed him straight through the small suburban station and clung to him as he reached the street. And there in the roadster was Marie, leaning toward him a little to hold the door open and smiling at him. Oh, Ted, what on earth are you staring at? That street light shining on your hair, I like that. Oh, you're tight. Come on, get in the car. <laughs> Then, 
like a wisp of smoke, it was gone. The whole ridiculous fear, the delusion. When at home, Marie brought the cocktails into the living room. The logs were burning brightly in the fireplace, throwing a soft, dancing glow upon a room that was darkening with dusk. To you, Marie. And to you, dear. As Stevens placed his glass down, he noticed the manuscript of my book. It was there on the table, right where he placed it when he first came in. Deliberately, he turned from it, and then turned back. The manuscript had been moved. Only an inch or so, but it had been moved. Keeping his back to his wife, he thrummed through that early chapter and discovered, just as he knew he would, that the photograph was gone. For a long moment, he thought of what to do. Then slowly, he turned around. This book by Cross I brought home. Yes? Uh, there was a story of Poisoner in it. Rather funny. Her name happens to be the same as yours. Oh, your maiden name, that is. Oh, that is odd, isn't it? <laughs> Darling, was she a relative of yours? Why, Ted, you're serious. In a way, yes. Oh, I don't mean it's really important. It's just that, well, when you run across a person who's a dead ringer for your own wife and who lived 300 years ago and was a top-flight poisoner... Well, you like to hear about it, that's all. What on earth are you talking about? Darling, be honest with me. Didn't you look at this manuscript when I was out of the room? No. You didn't take out a picture of a poisoner named Marie Debray? I most certainly did not. Oh, Ted, what is this all about? What are you getting at? Oh, just this. Somebody took that picture out of that manuscript since I've been home. Now, who's that? Well, I'll take a look. I don't feel like... Why, it's Mark Depard. Mark? Ted, wait a second. Yes? Ted, whatever it is he wants, promise you won't do it. Promise I won't do I it? I mean, promise you won't get yourself involved. Please, Ted, don't go out tonight. Say, what in the world is... Well, anyway, we can't let him stay outside. Mark, how are you? Come on in. Thanks, Ted. Thinking about giving you a call later. Oh, let me have your hat. Oh, thanks. I, Marie, I, I hope you'll excuse me for popping in like this, but, well, I wanted to talk to Ted. It, it's rather important. Oh, I don't mind at all. Come on, Mark, we'll step into the library. Oh, you mind, dear? Oh, of course not, Ted. I'll be making the sandwiches for her. Oh, grab that chair in the corner, Mark. Well, let's hear it. What's the trouble? Ted, my Uncle Miles was murdered. Murdered? Oh, the talk hasn't reached you yet, but it's already started. Nothing definite, of course. Just that there was something wrong about Uncle Miles' death. But I don't... Mark, are you sure of this? You know he was murdered? I don't know. Of course I don't. I just don't see how it could be any other way. Uncle Miles, you know, had been sick for quite a while. But last Saturday, he seemed so much better that Miss Corbett, uh, that was his nurse, decided to take the day off. And, oh, well, you know all this. You and Marie were over that afternoon. Anyway, Lucy and I went to the club that night, to that masquerade party, and we left the old boy completely alone. I've cursed myself a thousand times since. But what about your housekeeper, Mrs., uh, what's her name? Henderson. Wasn't she around? Oh, sure. In that little house out in back. We told her to look in now and then, but, well, that wasn't good enough. 
It was after midnight when Lucy and I got back. Uncle Miles was dying. Ted, it looked exactly like one of his regular attacks. But then later, after he was gone, I happened to glance under the chest of drawers in his room. There was a small silver cup under there, almost drained, and Uncle Miles' cat. The cat was still warm, but quite dead. Oh. I managed to get the cat out of the house and buried without anyone seeing me. Next day, I had the contents of the cup analyzed. It was poison? Yes. Arsenic. Well, what do you want me to do? Help me open the crypt. What? I want to have a private autopsy performed. Help me get Uncle Miles' body out of that vault. Oh, I know it's a tough job. The thing is sealed solid, but we can do it. You mean without the police knowing about it? Without anybody knowing about it. Mrs. Henderson's visiting her sister, and I managed to send Lucy over to the club. You must be crazy. You're playing with dynamite, Mark. This is something you've got to tell the police now. I can't take that chance. But they'll have to know sometime. You're only delaying... I've got to know first, I tell you. You don't understand, Ted. There was somebody in Uncle Miles' room that night, handing him something in a silver cup. Mrs. Henderson was on the porch by the window. She saw her. She saw her? Ted. She thinks it was my wife. Oh, Lucy. It doesn't mean anything to Mrs. Henderson yet, because she doesn't suspect anything, but, well... Ted, you've got to see why I've got to be sure. Why I've got to know how Uncle Miles died. Because it wasn't Lucy, Ted. I know it wasn't. Of course not, Mark. She had an alibi. Well, she was with you at the club, wasn't she? Yes. Except for half an hour. I see. You'll help me, won't you, Ted? When do we start? As soon as you can make it. Okay. Come on now. I'll get your hat. You trot on ahead and I'll come over as soon as I can see Marie. But you're not going to tell her about this? Of course not. I'll think of something. Don't you worry about it. No, thanks, Ted. Thanks a lot. Uh, Marie? I'm coming. Uh, darling, uh, Mark asked me to... Uh... I know, Ted. Here. You better take these sandwiches with you. You'll be hungry. Oh, but you knew I was going out? Yes, I knew. You listened to us? I couldn't help it, Ted. I had an idea what Mark's visit was about. The talk about his uncle's death. There's a lot of gossip about it in the village. That's why I tried to tell you why I didn't want you to get mixed up in it. But it's too late now, isn't it? I mean, you're going. I can tell by the way you look. Ted, wait a second. There's just one thing I want to tell you before you leave. And that is that no matter what happens, no matter what you find or think or believe, I love you. You'll remember that, won't you? I'll remember you said so, Marie. By the light of a dim kerosene lantern, Mark and Ted Stevens pounded their way through the thick shelf of rock that covered the Depar's ancestral tomb. Pried open the great slab of stone which lay across the subterranean door and then at last descended to the dank ink-black chamber. They found the coffin they dragged it from its crypt and placed it on the cold stone floor. They unclamped the lid and opened it. Mark! It's empty. What? That's impossible. It can't be. But it is, Mark. You know what this means? That body wasn't in this coffin when it was placed here. I'll swear it was, Ted. 
From the time that coffin was closed on Uncle Miles, somebody, the undertaker or Lucy or me, somebody was with it until it was buried. And the crypt was sealed right after. Then somebody beat us to it. Somebody's broken in here ahead of us. Broken in? Listen, Ted. Lucy and I have hardly left the house since the funeral. Do you think anybody could break in here? Smash through that stone and cement without our seeing them or without our hearing them? Well, well, what? Well, you might as well come on out then. But who was that? Me, Mr. Depard, up here. My name's Captain Brennan. I'm from the office of the Commissioner of Police. From the... I'd like to talk to you if you don't mind, Mr. Depard. Here, uh, follow my flashlight up. But I don't understand. How did you... How did you know about this? By listening, mainly. You mind if we go up to your house, Mr. Depard? Why, no. Not at all. Oh, thank you. Oh, Freddy. Uh, look here, Captain. Uh, I... Uh, Freddy, this is Mr. Depard, Lieutenant Gray. Glad to know you, Mr. Depard. And Mr. Uh, Ted Stevens, isn't it? Well, how did you... How did you know my name? Very simple. I got the names of everybody who was here at the Depards the day the old man died. You and your wife were included. Oh, here we are. But I don't... Uh, uh, Captain, who gave you those names? Why, your housekeeper, of course. Mrs. Henderson? You didn't think Mrs. Henderson saw the dead cat, did you, Mr. Depard? But she did. She also saw you bury it. And uh, we've been interested in the case ever since. Well, nice place you have here, Mr. Depard. Now, let's see. According to Mrs. Henderson, your wife was wearing some kind of a masquerade costume that night. What kind of a thing was it? Well, it was... A... Oh, there, you can see it. It was copied from the dress in that old painting over there. Oh, yes. Mm, funny. Well, where's the woman's face? It's always been that way. Long as I can remember. Somebody must have thrown acid on it or something. <laughs> Can't blame them much. She was a poisoner. A poisoner? Yes. The story goes that one of my ancestors was responsible for her execution. Marie Dobray, her name was. Oh, yes. I've read about her. Learned all the poison tricks from one of her lovers, guy by the name of Gordon Saint Croix. Gordon Saint. Oh yes, Mr. Stevens. We cops read now and then. Did, did you say Gordon Saint Croix? That's French. We call it cross. <laughs> Absolutely no limit to a cop's education, is there? <laughs> but to uh, get back to your wife, Mr. Depard, she was dressed like the famous Marie. Now when Mrs. Henderson looked through that window. Just a minute, Captain. Mrs. Henderson can't prove she saw a thing, and you know it. What do you mean? I mean you haven't any right to insinuate that my wife was in that room. Well, who's insinuating? I, I'm trying to say that Mrs. Henderson, after thinking it over, realizes she was tricked by the costume. The woman she saw in the funny clothes, handing the cup of poison to your uncle, wasn't your wife at all. What? Because your wife is an unusually tall young woman. And the one Mrs. Henderson saw was fully half a head shorter. More on the order, let's say, of uh, Mr. Stevens' wife. My wife? Captain, Why, this is absolutely ridiculous. Well, I don't know. All right, what's the matter, Mr. Stevens? You're trembling like a leaf. Uh, tell me now, uh, just for fun, where was Mrs. Stevens that night? She was home with me. The whole evening? Certainly. She retired early? Yes, we both did. You, I suppose, were sound asleep by midnight. Yes, I was. Then how do you know where your wife was? Well, I... Look here, I... Stevens. She had to have a costume that would match Mrs. Depard's. How did she manage that? Where did she get it? Well, she, she never had one. She never had a dress like that. And what about our motive? Why did she poison him? I don't know. Not for money, certainly. Then what was it? Hate? 
Did she hate my stepmother? Oh, yes, yes, she declared. No. Oh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know, I tell you. Brown. Yes, Freddie. I phoned and got hold of Mrs. Depard, the nurse, all right. That Mrs. Stevens couldn't reach her. Her phone won't answer. Okay, have her picked up. I'm going home. Stevens, come back here. I'm going to get my wife. Oh, will you stop him, Brown? My name is Cross. Go down, Cross. Cross? Where's my wife? What have you done to her? <laughs> you fiend, what have you done to my wife? You are nothing at all, young man. Here, here, here. Sit down. You're lying. Something's happened to her. The police just phoned. There wasn't an answer. Why are you here? Why am I here? Well, because your wife, reading my chapter on the Dubrays, realized I knew more about the family than even she did. Because she found my phone number on the front cover of the manuscript. And because I know an exceptional case when I hear one. Does that answer your question? No, and you know it doesn't. Can't you see I've got to... I've got to know whether... Yeah, I see. Whether your wife is that Marie Dobray, who was burnt. Burnt by order of the High Tribunal for all poison cases. The burning court of France. Witchcraft. Black magic. The world across the threshold. You're quite sure, no doubt, also, that I'm Godin Saint Croix, who first wooed her. No, no, my boy. <laughs> no, my real name happens to be, of all things, Tom Simpson. Most unsuitable for a distinguished writing career. And Marie Dobray is no more your wife's real name than mine is Gordon Cross. What? Your esteemed wife was an adopted child, Mr. Stevens. Adopted by people in Canada named Dobray. Remote members of the real family of poisoners. I can't believe it. Why... Why didn't she tell me? Yeah, why? Because until I told her half an hour ago, she didn't know it herself. You see, in the course of my research on the family, I found out about it. And in the course of talking with your wife, I found out something else. How for years she was haunted by the fear that she might be a poisoner by inheritance, by blood. And you can see, can't you, why she never talked about it? Oh, her yes. past to you? Yes, yes. And yet, Mr. Stevens, you had all but made her forget that past. You. And that's why she was willing to lie, to steal a picture, do anything, in order to hold you to her. Yes, yes, I, I see that now. You know, young man, I, I rather think she loves you. But as you will see, though, I, she comes only when I call her. Uh, Mrs. Stevens? You mean she's... Yes, Mr. Cross. Marie, it's you. You're all right? Oh, yes, dear. We're both all right now. Nothing can change it, ever. Marie, listen. Don't say Marie, dear. Say Maggie. Maggie? Oh, that's my name, my real name. Maggie McTavish. And it's a lovely name, dear. The most beautiful, gorgeous... Darling, ever. darling, please. You don't understand. The police, they think you had something to do with Miles' death. They think I did. So, now, Mr. Stevens, before we go back to the Depars, don't you think you'd better tell me everything that's been said and done up to date? Having just saved your wife's soul from the burning court, now I'll rest her body from the electric chair. <sighs> yes, Mr. Depart, truly excellent sherry. Don't you think so, Miss Corbett? Yes. Yes, it's very nice. Well, 
That, ladies and gentlemen, is how I happen to be here. So let us consider first that supernatural hocus-pocus in the crypt, that body that walked out of the sealed tomb, that body that never was in the tomb. Never was in the tomb? No, Mr. Depard. The murderer knew that very soon Mrs. Henderson's story would bring about an investigation. He had to get rid of the well-known corpus delicti. Yes, but who could have kept the body out of the tomb? Who, Mr. Depard? Why, you, sir. What? what, what, what <laughs> I don't understand. Well, it's very simple. You had the opportunity. I believe you said yourself you were alone with the body before the burial. And you had the strength. I dare say you carried it down to the furnace. Where it's now probably nothing but ashes. Ridiculous. Why would he spend an hour smashing into a crypt for a body he knew wasn't there? Why, Captain? Hmm. To impress Mr. Stevens, his witness. And also, apparently, you. Oh, that's perfectly fantastic. Fantastic? Oh, no, Lucy. Just comic. And I suppose, Mr. Cross, that I also put on a woman's masquerade costume, went into my uncle's room and handed him a nice cup of arsenic. No, no, no. That had to be done by a woman. Your accomplice, as matter of fact. Oh, now, come, come, come. You mustn't all look at Mrs. Depard, because Mark Depard's one noble act was his frantic effort to prevent his wife from being charged with the crime. A crime which he and nurse Myra Corbett committed. Myra Corbett? Why, you... Yes, sir. Yes, Mr. Stevens, this quiet little lady beside uh, me. Why would I do such a thing? Money, Miss Corbett. A cutout of Mark Depard's inheritance. Payments for uh, services rendered. That's an absolute lie, Cross. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Captain Brennan never bothered to check Miss Corbett's whereabouts on the night of the murder. Why even think of the nurse? She was the custodian of the old man's health. Oh, you're crazy. You're crazy. And Captain. yet who but a nurse could so naturally offer the old man a cup? A cup he was sure contained medicine. You're making it up. The whole thing, you're just And who but Miss Corbett, living right here in this house, would know what kind of masquerade dress she must copy, would know when Mrs. Henderson would pass the window that night, pass and see her, and accept her, she hoped, for Lucy Depard. No! Well, that's not true. Oh, yes, Miss Corbett. Yes, Miss Corbett, that dress was the touch that wrecked you. That was your own idea, wasn't it? Not Mark's. You weren't content with a mere murderer's share of the profits. You wanted a wife share, half of the whole estate. You wanted Lucy Depard convicted and out of the way for good. Mm. Well, I give you a toast, Miss Corbett, with Mr. Depard's excellent sherry to a particularly ruthless poisoner. And yet, you know, on the whole, I'm rather partial to female poisoners. Why, only tonight I... Mr. Cook, what's the matter, Brennan? This man's dead. Dead? And from cyanide, if I know anything. Cyanide from that glass of sherry. Cyanide that a nurse could get quite easily. That glass was right beside you, Miss Corbett, and nobody else was near it. Too bad he didn't drink it as soon as you hoped. A second ago, we had nobody to use against you. But we have now, Miss Corbett. We have now. And I arrest you for the murder of Gordon Cross. Now close to five months ago that the prominent author was murdered. And tonight, Myra Corbett pays with her life for that crime. The former nurse, at first protesting oh, her yes. innocence... Yes, I'm in here, dear. Oh, oh. I thought you might. Well, what did you cut it off for? 
Huh? What do you mean? The radio. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well, I thought you wanted to talk. Oh, Ted, don't you think I know you better than that? What was on the radio? Well, there wasn't any... Okay. It was about Myra Corbett. She goes to the chair tonight. Oh. I didn't think you wanted to be reminded. I don't, really. But making such an effort to hide it only keeps it alive, doesn't it? All right, darling. Know what I came in to ask? If you ordered a cocktail before dinner? The largest one you've got. Fine. I'll get out the ice cube. I know. If I'll fix up the fire. Okay, Maria. A deal. Uh, where are some papers to start it? <laughs> right there by the bookcase. And the name's not Marie. It's Maggie. Because, darling, Marie's dead and gone forever. shall we have? Oh, <laughs> any kind, darling. Any kind at all. You've just heard The Burning Court from John Dixon Carr's famous novel... The first in Columbia's new series of outstanding classics and chills by world-famous authors. Tonight's play, ladies and gentlemen, has one rather special significance we think you'd like to know about. As you perhaps have heard, every fine comedian is said to cherish a secret desire to do an abrupt about-face. He pines for the part of a blackguard. Well, tonight you witness the fulfillment of one such desire. The role of that literary and quite infamous diehard Gordon Cross was portrayed by none other than Hollywood's expert provoker of laughs, Charlie Ruggles, here in New York for the world premiere of his latest screen success, Friendly Enemies. The role of Marie? Well, that was enacted by a young lady who long ago won national acclaim as one of Broadway's most accomplished dramatic actresses, Miss Julie Hayden. Thank you, Charlie Ruggles and Miss Julie Hayden, for your splendid performances. The play tonight, as all plays in this series, was produced and directed by Charles Vander, written by Harold Metford and scored by Bernard Herman. Next week, we bring you an intensely exciting and moving drama, The Life of Nellie James. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Roma Wines, R-O-M-A. Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California, bring you... Suspense. Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Miss June Havoc in Stand In, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Shenley by William Spear. 
Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills, is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A, Roma Wines. Those better-tasting California wines enjoyed by more Americans than any other wine in the world. And thanks to this tremendous popularity, you can now serve Roma wine more often. Roma prices have been reduced to save you money on every bottle you and your friends enjoy. We'll tell you more about this money-saving opportunity later on. And now, Roma Wines bring you Miss June Havoc in a remarkable tale of... Suspense! She's here! Diana, get WC! Uh, tell him, will you? Okay. Jensen, yeah, take on those 40 Western Union boys that were supposed to come out and sing, Here Comes the Bride. Very good, sir. And everybody take it easy now. Keep calm. What do you want to do? Give her a nervous breakdown? Right this way, boys. Hello, darlings. Hello, everybody. Madame is home again. That was always the way with Madame. A grand entrance for her and utter confusion for everybody else. She was rotten spoiled. But what could you do? On the screen, she looked like an angel. And she was the top box office draw of the biggest studio in Hollywood. Everybody heard the story by now, of course. That is, the nine-day wonders version that the newspapers carried. But there are only two people in the world who know the real story. And I'm one of them. You see, I was her stand-in. This particular little caper all began just before her latest picture was supposed to go in front of the cameras. And she suddenly decided she simply couldn't bear to be making only $10,000 for a whole week's work and took off to Florida. Nobody heard a word of her for two months except in the newspapers. Little things like she'd married her fifth husband and lost $40,000 in one night at roulette and bought an old Spanish monastery and was going to bring it back to Hollywood stone by stone. And then all of a sudden, she was coming back. That very day... With husband and monastery and everything. And everybody had to jump. The retinue had been waiting all afternoon and going not so quietly crazy. Particularly Mike Foss, her publicity agent, and me. I was having a whole duplicate set of dresses fitted so we could start the picture the minute she got back. She swept in, and I took a look at the new husband. And the minute I saw him, I knew there was going to be trouble. Because he wasn't taking it well. He wasn't taking it at all well. Madame, for the love of Pete, where have you been? W.C.'s been blowing his top all day in the newspaper. Oh, now, Michael, darling, everything's been taken care of. I sent W.C. a big box of orchids from the airport. And I brought a few of the newspaper boys along with you. You did? Hello, Pogo, darling. I want to talk to you first. I wanted to give you... Oh, by the way, everybody, this is my new husband, Dennis O'Brien. He blew me out. We bought a little four-seater. Isn't he gorgeous? Gorgeous. Such an improvement on Romana, doesn't he? Say hello to the folks, Danny, huh? Hello? Uh, say, how about a couple of nice pictures of the bride and groom, huh? Oh, well, darling, I think that's a splendid uh, idea. Got... Come on, Dennis. Come on, a little to one side, I think, darling. Leaning over, perhaps. That's right. Not too far from the picture. And where you say? There. Now, isn't that about right, boys? Ah, uh, that's fine. Now, one of you alone, madame. Oh, certainly. You can go now, Dennis. I'll, I'll join you a little later, darling. Just look around the house. Make yourself at home. Thanks. Uh, hold it, madame. Thank you. Goodbye. Oh, that's all right. Madame, uh, I was wondering about your hair. Are you going to wear it up in the cathedral oh, scene? Oh, I or, am afraid, uh, Beat. Lawrence uh, and our miners' party was Boku. Madame, really. Uh, madame, oh, I wonder... Diana, darling, I hardly noticed you. Well, How are the new dresses coming? That well, one you, you have on looks lovely, dear. Well, you look you. lovely, too. Well, thanks, madame. I was wondering oh, please, if... please, will you go? Diana, dear, I shall have to go and have that awful ordeal with W.C. and the Schwartzes will be well, here. Well, certainly. Oh, Good night, madame. <laughs> See what I mean? I won't say I didn't hate her, because I did. 
But I was used to it by now. With a living and better than pounding a typewriter or getting mauled in a modeling agency. And I made my way back to the big gloomy house to the study where I'd left my things. As I opened the door, I saw her husband, Dennis. He was standing with his back to me in the semi-darkness, looking out the big French windows that lead to the formal garden. He turned his head a little when I came in and then back again, staring out the window. But even from where I stood, I could see that his big shoulders were bunched into knots. I could kill you when you're like that, Maggie. What do you think I am, one of your great Danes that you can haul around on a leash and put through parlor tricks? But I... I'm not listening now, Maggie. I'm telling you. Now cut it out. Cut it out or so help me some night, I'll murder you. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. O'Brien. I didn't mean huh? to... Oh, I, I, I thought it was Maggie. Oh, so I gather. Excuse me. Oh, that's all right. Forget it. I know you didn't mean No. That's where you're wrong, sister. Oh? I meant every word of it. I looked at him, handsome, weak, and violent. And I think I, I saw it all right then. For one split second, a flash of intuition, the future lit up in front of me like a marquee sign, a, a sign in big red letters that said, Murder. Suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you June Havoc in Stand-In. I don't have the right face for the screen, but I've got everything else. And Denny knew it. I didn't keep it a secret from him either. Not that I had to flaunt it at him. He was married to a slightly sagging movie queen, at least ten years older than I was. And he was only human. Not that I said anything, either. For a week, I hardly spoke to him. First, because it was smart. And then, being Madame Stand-In, because I was busy. There was all the flurry of getting the picture started, costumes and tests and so on, and finally, the Academy Award dinner. Perhaps the less said about that, the better. It was Olivia de Havilland who got the award, of course. Not Madame. And she found out about it just before the dinner and threw off wing-ding. But we got her out of there and brought her home before she caused too much damage. And Mike called a doctor, and he gave her a sedative, and then Denny and I were alone for the first time. All alone in that big, rambling mausoleum of a house. Diane? Yes? Come over here, won't you? I'm all right here. Then I'll come over there. I'm not used to these big spaces. But, but keep a little space, huh, Denny? I'm not used to no space. I know. I've got no business even looking at you. But... But What? For a week now, I've been watching you, thinking about you. I know. Do you... did you? Well, those things don't usually happen to just one person, Denny. Takes two. Diane. Oh, wait a minute, Denny. Why? There are a couple of things we'd better get straight. All right. Oh, Denny, you poor, big, beautiful character, you. Why did you have to marry her? Well, things look a little different sometimes from where you are, and... They do when you get there. And where were you? I was a lifeguard. Just as simple as that. And you thought this looked even easier? There wasn't anyone else, and I thought, well, Hollywood, glamour, luxury. I might even get a break myself. Funny things have happened. Now you know. Yeah. Now I know. But you still want those things that you married her for, don't you? Sure, I suppose so. But I want something else now. Me? Yeah. 
Sure. You got what you want, but I haven't. And I'm not settling for anything less. I'm not going to be the little girl that you see when you want to and then come back and lie around in your swimming pool. I want a swimming pool, too. Well, maybe there's a way we can have it together. Sure. There is a way. What way are you thinking about? A way that people like us would never want to take. Hmm. But suppose we did. That would be different. Is that a deal? Sure. That's a deal. Casual. The light touch. But it was there just the same. We never spoke about it after that. Things went along and, well, <laughs> I'm only human, too. But there was always that understanding between us. All that time, we were just waiting, I guess, for what they call in the crime stories, the opportunity. And then, on the last week of the shooting schedule on Madame's new picture, it came. There was only one more take before we knocked off that day, so I was free to go home. But everybody else was jumpy and irritable, as usual, particularly Madame. And then I saw Denny walking down the stage. Don't blame me for holding up the picture. You're the director, I'm not. Oh, please, Madame. I'll be ready any time you say. Uh, make it ten minutes. Well, really. Okay, fellas, move in, put it close-up. Oh, hello there, Maggie. Oh, it's you. Yeah, when are you quitting? Oh, Dennis, how do I know? I'm not the director. I'm merely the star. You know, we're supposed to be aboard the yacht by 7.30. There'll be people working. All right, all right, let them wait. Yeah, but yesterday you said that oh, you Oh, yesterday, wanted... yesterday I said one thing. Today I am working. Now shut up and leave me alone. Don't talk to me that way, Maggie. What? I'm your husband, remember? Yes, and I've had about all of that I can stand, too. Now you get out of here. Do you hear me? Get out of here. Hey, Maggie. And you might start looking for a good divorce lawyer. I think you're going to need one. All right, come on, Hal. Hello. Uh, oh, hello, Diane. Let's take a little stroll out of the gate, shall we? I could use some fresh air. Come on. We'll duck out the big stage door here. Okay. Well, it doesn't look like I have much longer, does it? Not much. Now or never. I'm not quite sure I know what you're talking about, Ken. Let's quit kidding ourselves. You know what I'm talking about. If she divorces me, we're finished. You're finished. All right, I'm finished. So if we are ever going to do anything, it's got to be now. All right, let's quit kidding ourselves. Are we going to do anything? I would, if I knew how. There's the guard at the gate. Uh, good evening, Mr. O'Brien. Miss Burke? Uh-huh. Hello. Hey, madame. I please have your autograph. Afraid you got the wrong gal, Sonny. I'm not madame. You can't fool me, madame. You're shooting that picture, Carmelita. Oh, come on, Peter, will you? I even seen you in the same dress lots of times. Oh, sure, they fixed me up to look like Madame, but I'm not. I'm only her stand-in. Stand-in? Come on, Diane. Wait a minute. Look, Sonny. They gotta have somebody standing in there so they can focus everything just right, and that's me. And then when they're ready to shoot the scene, Madame comes out all fresh and pretty and plays it. You see now? Oh, you sure look like her, though. Well, that's what they pay me for. Diane. What? That's it. That's the how right there. The what? How? The kid just told us just now. Don't you get it? How do you... Sure. Out of the mouths of babes. How to murder your wife. The whole thing would take about 20 minutes. It had to be timed and planned to the split second. We planned it for the last day and the last shot of the picture. When everybody lets down and gets sort of half hysterical at the idea that the thing is finally over. The shooting schedule was made for us. The last shot with Madame was on an enormous set of a cathedral interior, with the camera pulling back half the length of the stage. It was shot silent. There was no dialogue and no sound. We figured the shot for about 10.30 at night, and we were almost right on the nose. They finished the close-up, and the sound men had shoved their mics and things over to one side of the set, and the director and the cameraman were lining up for the long shot. 
be ready in about 20 minutes, madame. Well, I'll be in my dressing room. Call me, if you please. Oh, what a relief. What a blessed relief. It's almost Oh, over. madame. Yes, my dear. Uh, you won't need me anymore, will you? Oh, no. No, my dear. Run along. Run along and enjoy yourself, and thank heaven you're not a star. Thanks. Good night, madame. Good night, dear. Well, well, well. Dennis. Hello, Maggie. I've been beastly to you lately, Dennis, really. Come along to my dressing room. We'll have a little talk. As I was leaving the stage, Denny was taking her back to her dressing room. It was 10.40, and I knew exactly how he'd look at her, and what he'd say, and what he'd do. Close the door, Denny. Yes, that's it. Do sit down. Make yourself comfortable. No, thanks. Oh, don't be silly. There's just one more take. And You're not do... going to make it, though, Maggie. What do you mean? I mean, you're through, Maggie. Through. Dennis, Dennis! <laughs> Leaving Gazlani? Yeah, I got my orders. She said to call her when you're ready. Okay. Night, then. Night. Seven minutes. Seven minutes were gone. Now he'd be passing the guard at the stage door. Good night, Mr. O'Brien. Night. And now he'd be walking down the studio street and turning the corner at the other end of stage one and strolling over to the guard at the main gate. Uh, hello, Mr. O'Brien. Going home now? <laughs> I wish I knew. You married, Matt? <laughs> I know what you mean. Well, I got my orders, and all I can do is carry them out. Ours not to question why, huh? Yeah, that's right. You waiting for Madame? Yep. She told me to wait until exactly 11 o'clock, and if she wasn't out here to go on home, so I got 10 or 15 minutes to kill. Cigarette? Oh, thanks. Don't mind if I do. He'd stay there now. He'd stay there until it was time. It was 10.49. Just five minutes before, I had passed that same guard on the stage door. Ah, good night, Miss Burke. Night. And I had walked down the same studio street and passed the same guard at the main gate. Well, finally knocking off, eh, Miss Burke? That's right. Good night. Yeah, good night, Miss Burke. Good night. I had walked straight ahead, as though I was going to the bus line. And then, when I was out of sight of the main gate, I ducked up the little side street that runs along the west end of the lot. I kept in the shadows now, watching every move. About a hundred feet from the corner, there's another gate. It's usually locked and never used. But they'd been shooting an exterior, and they'd taken the gate off the hinges. There were barricades across the entrance, and a watchman passed about every 15 minutes and then rounded the corner. He was passing now. I waited in the shadows. Now, he was gone. Now. Now was the time. I took a quick look around. There was no one in sight. I dashed to the gate and was over the barricades in an instant, and running as softly as I could toward the back of stage one. The big door at the back where they move in the scenery and the flats was open about a foot. We'd seen to that. And I squeezed in, and I made my way behind the scenes to Madame's dressing room. I opened the door and closed it behind me. And then I knew for sure that Denny had been there and done his part. She was lying on the floor with the marks of his big hand still on her throat. She was dead. It was 10.57. I had on the costume with the veil over my face. And there was nothing to do but wait. Wait there, shot up in a little room with a dead woman. For them to call her and for me to play her part. I, I tried not to look at her lying there and 
I knew you. We're all ready, madame. I waited for the steps to die away. And then I opened the door. As Denny had said, it was now or never. I walked out and took my place on the set. I nodded my head. Rolling. Rolling. Speed. Action. Out of the corner of my eye, I caught the camera on the big boom, slowly beginning to pull back. It seemed a million miles away. I began walking down the aisle of the cathedral. There was no sound, so I was getting direction all the way. Slowly. Remember, you're overwhelmed with grief. Now you kneel. That's it. Now you clasp your hands together. Now cast your eyes upward. That's it. Perfect. Now hold it. A little longer. Just a little longer. Cut! That's all, boys. Put it in the car. That was all. I had to keep myself from running as I started back to the dressing room. But when I got there, I sprinted. Around the corner and out to the big door. Denny's car was there, all right, with the back door open. And I slipped into it and lay down on the floor of the back seat. It was 11 o'clock. Well, looks like my time's up. Yeah. A couple of minutes after 11. Guess she's not coming, huh? Guess not. Well, orders is orders. Yes, that's right, Mr. O'Brien. I could hear his steps coming over to the car. And then getting in, and then we were starting off. Good night, Mr. O'Brien. Good night. You back there, Diane? Yes, I'm here. Well, we made it, baby. We made it. We knew they probably wouldn't find her till the next day. Even a director wouldn't dare disturb her if he got no answer at the dressing room door. And that's what happened. We got the news about mid-morning, and of course, everybody on the lot was grief-stricken. And that afternoon, everybody who'd be on the Carmelita set or had anything to do with Madame was called into projection room A. That's when we first met Lieutenant Malone. I know you folks all feel bad about this, <laughs> but we might as well lay it on the line. The lady's dead. And someone who was on that set is the one who killed her. Now, you're the husband, aren't you? Dennis O'Brien? That's right. Well, you know how we work these things. Motive and opportunity. And just offhand, Mr. O'Brien, you practically got a corner on the motive market. I suppose I have. Oh, but Lieutenant, uh, a dozen people saw Dennis... Mr. O'Brien leave the set before she was killed, before she made the last shot, and he, he was out talking to the guard the whole time after that, and then, then he went straight home. He couldn't have done it. Yeah, I know. It's a good alibi. Awful good. Well, how do you know some stranger didn't kill her? Maybe she fell asleep in the dressing room after the shot, and some prowler... Uh-uh, ca- no, it just doesn't feel right. Uh, you got the film of that last shot you made? Yeah, here we got it here. Let's see it, huh? Will you run that last Camelita take again, please? Here we go. 
slowly now. Slowly. Remember you. What was that? That's me giving directions. We're supposed to be silent shot. Of course, that won't be used. There'll be music to cover that. Well, let's hear it anyway. Whatever you say. That's all there is to it. Yeah. Not much there. My lieutenant, nobody in the studio would have touched a hair of Madame's head. We, we all loved her so much. Yeah, you better learn a little more about the picture business before you start throwing wild accusations around. Uh, I, I think you got something there, Mike. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll just do that little thing. <laughs> A month went by. Of course, Denny and I didn't dare see much of each other, but things were going along. I'd even had a couple of small parts. On the strength of all the publicity about Madame, somebody discovered that maybe I did have the right face for the screen. And then one day we got a call to go to projection room A, and there was Lieutenant Malone again. Ah, uh, just make yourselves comfortable, folks. I got something to show you. I hope it's more than you had the last time. <laughs> yeah, Mike, yeah. I've been learning the picture business, like you said. I learned a lot, too. All about silent shots and sound shots and wild track and dubbing and stand-ins. Uh, you were Madame Stand-in, weren't you, Miss Burke? Yes, I was. Uh-huh. You, uh, look quite a lot like her, too. Well, a little, I, I suppose. Oh, you'd fool me, all right, if your back was turned. Well, I've been fooling around down in the cutting rooms... I never realized before how much stuff got thrown away. I uh, made a little collection of it. I want to show it to you. Here we go. Now, that is a wild soundtrack. You make that separate and mix it in after you've made your film, right? You can make sound without pictures just the same as you can make pictures without sound, right? Now, that day you folks were making that last shot of Carmelita, the sound engineers were sort of slap-happy, it being the last day and all, and so they just pushed their microphones out of the way. But they forgot to turn off the sound. And they pushed that mic right up against Madame's dressing room before the last shot. And the cameraman was running some test film, and here's what he got. I uh, found this in a cutting room trash bin. Sit down. Make yourself comfortable. No, thanks. Oh, don't be silly. There's just one more take, and then... You're not going to make it, though, Maggie. What do you mean? I mean, you're through, Maggie. Through. Dennis! (laughs) Well, I guess that's it. Huh, Mr. O'Brien? Miss Burke? Yes. Yes, I guess that's it. seen Denny since the trial. I wonder if I'll see him afterwards. If what the preachers say is right, I suppose I will. And of course, Madame will be down there, too. 
I can't think of any worse punishment than being her stand-in through all eternity. So I suppose that's what I'll get. Suspense. Presented by Roma Wines, R-O-M-A, Roma, America's favorite wines. In a moment, we'll hear again from June Havoc, star of tonight's suspense play. Meanwhile, this is Truman Bradley with a suggestion that you try Roma Wines and discover for yourself the important difference, the extra-taste luxury that makes Roma America's most preferred wine. You'll find that Roma Wines taste better... Because Roma alone selects from the world's greatest reserves of fine wines. You will also find that you now pay less for Roma's premium quality. That you actually save up to 20% on these better tasting wines. Tomorrow, buy a supply of Roma California Sherry. The perfect appetizer before dinner. The gracious gesture when friends drop in. This is June Havoc. Suspense is one of my favorite programs. And I got a real thrill appearing on it tonight. I'm going to be listening to next week's suspense show when Elliot Reed will be the star. Thanks a lot and good night. June Havoc will soon be seen opposite George Raft in the United Artists production, Intrigue. Tonight's suspense play was by Robert Richards and Pamela Wilcox. Next Thursday, same time, you will hear Mr. Elliot Reed as star of Suspense. Produced by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California. and its 98,000 dealers bring you Mr. Elliot Lewis in tonight's presentation of Suspense. Tonight, Autolite presents a story of revenge, the desperate effort of a murderer to destroy the man who had committed him to prison. The story is called Concerto for Killer and Eyewitnesses. Our star, the producer-director of Suspense, Mr. Elliot Lewis. Hello, Harlow. Uh, goodbye, Hap. Goodbye. Why, sure, Hap. This is our last show till fall. The last chance to talk about that great Autolite Stay Full, the battery that needs water only three times a year in normal car use. Oh, it's a great battery, Harlow. And just the battery to make every summer trip happier than ever. Why, Hap, the Autolite Stay Full is a natural for every season of the year. It has fiberglass retaining mats protecting every positive plate to reduce shedding and flaking. And it gives longer life, as proved by tests conducted according to accepted life cycle standards. The Autolite Stay Full is the battery for me, Harlow. So, friends, see your neighborhood Autolite battery dealer soon. He services all makes of batteries, and when replacements are needed, he has an Autolite Stay Full for your car. To quickly find his location, just call Western Union by number... And ask for Operator 25. That's me, and I'll gladly tell you the location of your nearest Autolite battery dealer. Where you can get an Autolite Stay Full, the battery that needs water only three times a year in normal car use. And remember, from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. And now, with the performance of Mr. Elliot Lewis, 
Autolite presents transcribed Concerto for Killer and Eyewitnesses, hoping once again to keep you in suspense. My name's Jesse Crandall, Detective Sergeant, Central Division, Chicago Police Department. I was assigned to a special detail along with Detective Sergeant Abe Delaney on the first day of this week. Our duty was to escort prisoner Edward Sitko to the state penitentiary at Joliet, where he was to await execution. Our train left the main terminal at 5 in the afternoon. We all took prescribed precautions. The prisoner was securely handcuffed to both of us. He was wearing county jail-issue clothing. No hat. You guys have to walk me through the station? For a fellow who doesn't care who he kills, you're pretty touchy, Sitko. I got all the opinions I want in the judge copy. You're just supposed to see I get there. All right, that's enough, Sitko. We'll see that you get there, Eddie boy, all safe and sound and ready for the chair. Tell us punk to shut up. Tell him to shut up. I'm the last copper you'll ever call a punk, Sitko. Now keep looking tight. Stay off him, Delaney. Will you? Oh, sure, Jesse, sure. Sitko. Yeah. How come you're so stupid, Sitko? How come you trusted Dallas Kenyon when nobody else did? I never trusted anybody. Ever. If you didn't trust him, Sitko, how come he knew who you killed, where you killed, when you did it? Car 64, compartment A. This car, sir, second door to the right. Watch your steps, sir. Thank you. Come on. Hey. Here it is, A-14. <laughs> the taxpayers want to be sure you got only the best. Did your boy Kenyon ever treat you... Shut up about Kenyon. Look, Eddie, it's too late to be tough. Yeah, Eddie. You should have been tough with Dallas Kenyon instead of that two-bit hood he sent you out after. You killed the wrong guy, Eddie. I'm not dead yet. Maybe I'll still get the right one. <laughs> Better write him a poison pen letter? It's too late, Sitko. You killed a man. Now you're going to pay for it. Now being served in the dining car. Dinner now being served in the dining car. Place called for dinner. Place called for dinner. Place called for dinner. Oh, I'll get a bite now. Jesse, key. No. Here you Thanks. Oh, uh, want me to bring you back a newspaper, sick call? Nothing in them I want to read. First guy I ever took up to the death cell who didn't want to read his own publicity. Sergeant Delaney was in the dining car as we pulled out into the outer yards. That's when the train lurched forward. I went off balance for a moment. Sitko threw his weight on me and we crashed to the floor. Before I get off, copper. He brought his knee up into my face. One for you. I was momentarily stunned. He went through my pockets, found the keys, and unlocked the handcuffs. Sergeant Delaney returned at that moment. Sitko slammed against the door, locking it. And then he struck me across the temple with a handcuff. And one for your friend! Open up! Open up, Rock 2! He 
Before I lost consciousness, I saw Eddie Sitko open the train window and jump. the little prayer would do for him what he'd never been able to do for himself. It was Angela's time, six o'clock, when I heard him on the stairway outside my door. Yeah? Let me in. What are you doing here? What's the matter? Don't you like to see me? First time in my life I've been glad the trains run through this lousy, dirty neighborhood. Well, I don't understand. I... Dallas I... Kenyon. He's waiting for me. He don't know it, but he's waiting. And I'm going to be there. I need some clothes, money, a gun. Kenyon? Oh, Kenyon. You're going to kill again. Where are my clothes? Get out of here, Eddie. What? Get out. I got nothing of yours. I gave all your things to the neighbors, to the boys in the block. I thought they'd need some warm clothes to wear. They fought over them. And he tore them to shreds. They wanted souvenirs. They're growing up like you because they think you're a man. They think you're somebody. You who cheated and robbed and murdered. What do you mean by that? You ruin everything you touch. You shut up! Come on, give me some money. Give me some money. I got nothing. Nothing. Go away. Leave me alone. Go away, huh? I walk out that door and you yell copper, huh? Why don't you kill me then, Eddie? Go on, kill me. No, because you already killed me, Eddie, 15 years ago. Fifteen years I've operated a legitimate business. Fifteen years and nothing like this has ever happened to me. It's very frightening that such a thing should occur in a large city like Chicago. Very frightening. I read the newspapers, and I know all about Eddie Sisko. I read about his threats against this man, Dallas Kenyon, and all that, but I never thought that I, George Bartlett, would ever meet the man. What? Back inside. What? It's 6.30. It's time to close. I said back inside. I'm warning you. Don't yell. Don't do anything. Yeah, I don't want to yell. What do I want to yell and get killed for? Where are your guns? Where are your guns? Your guns? Every hot shop has guns. Where are they? A uh, uh, gun? Oh, what's a fellow sticking up a store? Uh, want... Where are your guns? Sitko. Uh, Eddie Sitko. I, I, I saw your pictures in the paper. Oh, shut up. Uh, over, over there in the case. Yeah, uh, that case. All the guns you want, all of them. Uh, anything here, it, it's yours. Take all of it, but uh, please leave me alone. Please, let me alone. Cartridges? Uh, uh, on your right, on your right. Uh, second drawer. <laughs> It's all yours. Please, just let me alone. I gotta change clothes. On the rack. On the rack, yes. You can see I'm trying to help you. Can't you see that? Yeah, this'll do. Yes, it'll fit nice. It's nice in the shoulders. I know it'll fit. Pull those shades. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You expecting anybody? A friend of mine, Albert Hennessy. 
she runs the barber shop two doors down. We 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 have beer sometimes after work. But if he comes, I'll send him away. I want to help you. Honest. I I I hate to see anybody get a raw deal. And that man you talked about during your trial at Dallas Canyon, he gave you a bad deal. I I I'm sure he gave you a bad deal. Did you hear me? I I said I hate to see anybody get a raw deal. And that Dallas Canyon. He... Yeah, that's little do. It fits perfectly. Like it was made just for you. I I helped you, didn't I? I believe in giving a man a chance. I'm a little man. I I can't hurt you. Kenyon, he, he's the one you want. That's right, yes. You need money. Take it. Take it, all of it. Anything. Please, just take it. You might need it if you have far to go and I... Oh, my car. You, you can trust me. Please, Mr. Sitko. You... I don't trust. No, no, no. I'm a grown man. Please, please don't beat me up. It's humiliating for a grown man to cry. Don't beat me up. Please don't. Everybody ought to give a little man a break. I'll give you a break, little man. No, please, please, no, no, no. I You just got your break. Kenny Tate, licensed operator, city of Chicago. You'll see a front and side of me right by the meter. I never go under and I never go over. And I never make wrong change. I never roll drunk. It's a job. It helps you to learn people. That's what I said, learn people. You can tell a lot by the way a woman lights a cigarette or a man reaches to pay his fare. I was just cruising when I saw Eddie Sitko. I didn't know it was him at first. I'll tell you when to turn. Right. Slow night, isn't it? Want the radio on? No. Turn right, next corner. Yeah, sure. Come on, get this going faster. <laughs> yeah, not tonight. I've never seen so many cops floating around. Never mind the tickets. Never mind it. Who'll pay for I'll pay. Let's get moving. Yeah, that's what they all say. Like just last I week... Said I said I'd pay a... for them. Move. Yeah, trying to make the fight? What? I said trying to make the fight. Fight? Yeah, I want to make the fight. Oh, well then. You'll just make it. Start at 8.30. Turn here. Huh? Turn here. I thought you wanted to go to the fight. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll circle back on the next corner. It won't cost you nothing. I'll pull down the flag. Hey, would you look at that? Second squad car in a block. Wonder what's up. Wonder if they're looking for somebody. What, what are you stopping for? The signal, mister. It's red. Can't make a right turn in the downtown district against the stop signal. It says go. Start fast. What are you doing? Don't turn left. Please, please, Eddie, don't do my Are you lousy?
Light is bringing you Mr. Elliot Lewis in Concerto for Killer and Eyewitnesses. Tonight's presentation in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Say, Harlow, before we go on vacation, I've got a question. All right, shoot, Hap. Does the Autolite Stay Full battery really have everything? You bet it does, Hap, including fiberglass retaining mats to reduce shedding and flaking and give the Autolite Stay Full longer life, as proved by tests conducted according to accepted life cycle standards. But doesn't the Autolite Stay Full need something, Harlow? Well, yes, it does, Hap. It needs water only three times a year in normal car use. Only three times a year in normal car use, Harlow? Yes, Hap, only three times a year in normal car use. So, friends... Visit your nearest Autolite battery dealer. He services all makes of batteries and has an Autolite stay full for your car. To quickly learn his location, call Western Union by number... And ask for me, operator 25. I'll quickly tell you the location of your nearest Autolite battery dealer. Where you can get an Autolite stay full, the battery that needs water only three times a year in normal car use. And remember, from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. And now... Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Mr. Elliot Lewis in his production of Concerto for Killer and Eyewitnesses, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. once when he was at the Roxy and I... Oh, yeah. Well, it was just a night like any other night. I'm the elevator boy, the regular clerk's across the street dipping his bill. So I'm having myself a ball. I got a little routine that somebody's going to pay money for someday, and that's what I was doing when he walks in. Hey, the window sheet is broken and the rain is coming in. Hiya! Kitty Bunnell still lives here? Yeah, 108. But she's not in. She's always out. 
I wish I could go out. These night jobs are lousy. You a friend of hers? Yeah. Boy, I wish I was a friend of hers. Some dish. She a dancer? Singer. Nightclub. And look, nightclubs. I... I like nightclubs. Not big spreads, jive joints. Most people don't like them anymore. Me, I like them. Look, I want to wait in her apartment. Wait in her apartment? Oh, gee, I don't no, know. No, she, she knows me. I'm her agent. Oh, well, not supposed to, buddy, and I haven't seen you around. Right, I've been out of town. I'm her agent. I've been booking her. Agent? Yeah? You've been booking her, huh? Hey, you handle any bands? Well, yeah, sure, lots of bands. Take me up, huh? You know Stan Kenton? Yeah, yeah, I know him well. Yeah? Introduce me. I, I got a little act idea, yeah. see? And it's... Yeah, just ask Miss Bunnell. Solid. You just made yourself a deal. It's on this floor. Come on. Only it's my neck if you tell anybody. Nobody, nobody. All you show business guys are jumpy. Why is that? Everybody's jumpy. They read the papers, that's what's wrong with them. Read the papers and get all looped up. Me? I only read downbeat. Got no nerve. This is it. Here you are, and uh, don't forget my knockdown to Kenton. Tomorrow. Fix it up first thing tomorrow. You want me to shut that window? No. Okay. She said she'd be back in a few minutes. She said, Manana, manana, manana is good enough for me. I can't believe it's really you. Didn't he tell you outside? Didn't he tell you I was here? Nobody told me anything. Eddie, how? Never mind now. You're going to help me the rest of the way. That's why I came here. Eddie, you're bleeding. Take your hands off me. Eddie, you're hurt bad. I know a doctor who can help you. I'll call There was the phone. Eddie, I don't understand. Never expected to see me again, did you? Nobody expected to see Eddie Sitko again. He's all through, isn't that it? Good old Eddie. Wrapped up in a murder app, isn't that it, Kitty? No, Eddie, no. That isn't it at all. You're wrong. Well, I'm right about one thing. Kenyon set me up there. Eddie, I've got to get you out of here. They'll be looking for you everywhere. They'll come here too. Kenyon sent me there. Kenyon pulled the cops. That's where we're going. Going? We're going? Going where, Eddie? See Dallas Kenyon. Well, that's where they'll be waiting for you. That's the first place they'll go. But they wouldn't stop you, Kitty. You could just drive right through the gate, an old friend. Crazy. And I'm right behind you on the floor of the car. Look, Eddie, I, I hate him as much as you do. I hate him for what he did to you, but I haven't seen him or heard from him since the trial. I hate him, Eddie, but you I... you got lots of reasons to help me, huh? But don't you see it wouldn't work? They'd search the car and they'd start shooting. Please. I had lots of time to think, Kitty. Please. Well, I was waiting to be set up. Funny what I remembered. Well, we could get away. Something my ma used to say. You and me. Way back. If you forgot when Kenyon. I used to sit around on the steps talking my with My car's him. downstairs. If we started now, Eddie. The only thing I do remember besides gang fights and reform school and the way they did things. They wouldn't look for me, don't you see? They wouldn't look for me if I were to disappear. There was a line from something. It said, there's a time to live and a time to die. Eddie, please listen well, to me. Kenyon's time, baby. My time. He sits in his big house and lets everybody else get dirty for him. 
He promises big payoff. And then he pays like he paid me off. Eddie. Just to stand in front of him and watch him be scared. Like I've been scared. I want to see him die. It's his time. Eddie, I love you. Things could be the way they once were if you forget him. Killing him won't do you any good. I love you. I love you. I love you. We could have each other again. I can get a doctor. He'll fix this. And then we can get away together, you and me. It's a big world. They don't catch everybody they're after. Hear what I'm saying, Eddie? Forget Dallas Kenyon. Forget about killing him. It's a miracle that you got away, but you are away. Don't let this destroy you, this hating him. There'd be nothing after that. We have time, darling. My darling, you and me, we have time. Baby, come here. Yes, darling. You love me? Wherever you want me to go, Eddie. You'll... You'll go anywhere with me? Yes, darling, yes. Here, my car keys. Drive around the back and I'll pack. What's wrong? You want me to leave you alone? I... I don't understand. You want me to leave you alone? You don't love me. What? Just to love him. No, Eddie, no. I, I told you I haven't seen him or heard from him since the trial. Not a word. Just I to love him. You always loved him. No, Eddie. Right now, you wanted me out of here so you could call and turn me in. So you could save him. You're not going to hurt him. We got rid of you when? And we'll get rid of you again. You and Kenyon. You and Kenyon. You and Kenyon. <laughs> to an urgent call. I became alarmed when a police cordon was established, but I never dreamed that it would come to what it did. Of course, this man, Sitko, had no way of knowing that I was in the house. I don't know how he got in without being seen. I was standing on the top of the landing in front of Mr. Kenyon's room when I first heard him in the hall below. He'd entered, I imagine, through the basement. He looked about to see if anyone would interfere with him. Then he saw me. He was wounded in several places. The shoulder, chest, I believe. His face was extraordinary. A mask of pure hate. I stood and watched him as he came up. You. Where is he? Do you mean Mr. Kenyon? Which room is it? Come on, move. This is Mr. Kenyon's room. Out of my way. God, get out of my way. The sheet. What's the sheet covering him up for? I'm the undertaker. Mr. Kenyon died of a coronary attack an hour ago. No! 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 He left across the room and ripped back the sheet covering the face. Uh-huh. Then he turned and walked out of the room, the gun still in his hand. 
The police, meanwhile, had entered the home, and seeing them, he again became enraged and began firing. Presented by Autolite. Tonight's star, Mr. Elliot Lewis, will return in just a moment. Music for Suspense is composed by Lucian Morrowick and conducted by Lud Gluskin. Concerto for Killer and Eyewitnesses was written for Suspense by Arthur Ross and E. Jack Newman and produced and transcribed by Elliot Lewis. In tonight's story, William Conrad was Jesse Crandall. Martha Wentworth was the old woman. Junius Matthews was the pawnbroker. Sidney Miller was the cab driver. Gil Stratton Jr. was the bellhop. Charlotte Lawrence played Kitty Bunnell, and Jay Novello played the undertaker. Others in the cast were Byron Kane and Jack Crucian. This is Harlow Wilcox speaking for Autolite. And here again is the star of tonight's play, Concerto for Killer and Eyewitnesses, the producer-director of Suspense, Elliot Lewis. Thank you very much, Harlow. Ladies and gentlemen, we of the Autolite family hope you enjoyed our show this evening. This is our last program of the season, but we'll be back on CBS Radio in September. We hope you'll join us. And in the meantime, we hope you'll give the Autolite family an opportunity to be of service to you. Indeed we do, Elliot. And friends... You'll find members of the Autolite family from coast to coast and throughout the world. 98,000 distributors and dealers in the United States and Canada proudly display the Autolite sign. To them and to the nearly 30,000 men and women in Autolite plants throughout the country, I wish to extend my thanks for a wonderful season on Suspense. Have a good summer, Harlow. Thanks, Elliot. Friends, Suspense will continue on television throughout the summer. Until we return to CBS Radio in September, here's wishing you a pleasant summer. And remember, you're always right with Autolite. This is the CBS Radio Network. Nancy Kelly stars in Trial by Jury. The sheriff escorted me down the jail corridor in person as though I were a VIP. 
Well, I am now. To cops and bailiffs and wardens and lawyers and judges, too. All over the city, Hilda Warren is a name to conjure with. Hilda Warren is the top criminal lawyer in the state. And for a woman, that means you've got to be twice as good as any man. And I am. So, number nine was the last on the right. There was a man inside, lying in the bunk with his feet up against the wall, reading the newspaper and smoking a cigarette. That was my first sight of Tommy Esterman. He was taking things pretty easy for a man accused of murder. Uh, there you are, Miss Warren. You take all the time you want. Oh, thank you, Sheriff. Just holler when you want out. I will. Well, you took long enough getting here. You're Mr. Esterman? Tommy, my friends call me. You're Mr. Esterman. You better call me Tommy, too. We'll get along better that way. All right. Tommy. But we're not going to get along unless you and I get a couple of things straight. And right now. Sure. Like what? Like you're not doing me any favors hiring me to handle your case because you're not. You're lucky to get me. You understand? Yeah. Yeah, I understand. Now, now the second thing is that I'm not in this for my health. I want a power of attorney over everything you've got, and I'm taking half. Half? Mm-hmm, that's right. About $10,000, isn't it? About. Well? That's pretty steep. It's a lot of dough. All the dough in the world won't do you any good in the death house. Go on. So? I want to know the truth. All of it. <laughs> Meaning I got to trust you, huh? Don't you? How do you know you can trust me? I trust you? Sure. Wouldn't look too good if it ever came out you were defending somebody you knew for a fact was guilty, would it? Well, you let me worry about that. Now, what's your story? How much do you know? Mm, only what I read in the papers. I know you came out here from the East a couple of weeks ago. Oh, and by the way, have you, uh, have you ever had any trouble with the law, Becky? No, I've been lucky. Where'd you get the money? An uncle left me about five grand when he died about a year ago. I ran it up to 20. Gambling? Mostly. Oh, and in other words, you're a professional. No, no, no. No, I'm a businessman. I invest in things, anything. I decided to run the five grand up to 20 and then come out here and start a place of my own. And did you? I didn't have a chance. I came out here to look things over, see? I went out to this place in the valley, Renzo's place. They took me for my role. I didn't realize the game was crooked until after I left. I started to think about it. So I went back. Mm, to get your money? Yeah. You mean you uh, held a gun on Renzo for it? I got the money. The police say that you uh, shot him in cold blood. They say they've got witnesses. Listen, there was so much hollering and running around and shooting. I bet you can get a dozen witnesses who think I was shooting at the guy who took the money. Mm, but that isn't what I asked you. I asked if you had killed him. Oh. This is where I have to trust you, huh? That's right. All right, sure. Sure, I killed him. I'd gotten all I wanted for the moment, so I left. Downstairs, I ran into S. Andrew Williams, Sandy Williams, the district attorney. But Sandy was a very nice guy who kept proposing to me with monotonous regularity and whom I kept defeating in court with the same regularity. He was awfully stuffy about his ethics. It was a sore point between us. Down here on business, Hilda? I'm going to defend Tommy Esterman. Oh? Anything wrong with that? No. Are you going to handle the prosecution? Somebody in our office will, of course. Listen, Hilda. Yes? He's guilty. You know that, don't you? If he is, you're going to have to prove it. We will. 
Because we know he's guilty. And uh, that's for the jury to decide, isn't it, Sandy? Every trial of mine is a show, but Tommy Esterman's was a spectacular. I got character witnesses from Tommy's hometown to prove what a good boy he'd always been. I showed him as a dewy-eyed young businessman who'd come west with his life savings to make good, only to be taken over the hurdles by an unscrupulous crook. I made Sandy Williams in the DA's office look practically half-witted for having brought the case to trial at all. I was sure it was in the bag, and I was right. The jury was out in less than an hour. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Your Honor, we have. I'll find you the defendant, Thomas Esterman. Guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. That night, Tommy invited me to help him celebrate his acquittal. I don't usually mix business with pleasure, but Tommy was mm, attractive in his cynical, larcenous way, and it wasn't too difficult to forget that I was sitting across the table from a murderer. Maybe I should have remembered, but I didn't. Now, how does it feel to be a free man, Tommy? Pretty good. If it didn't cost so much. Oh, cost. You're a very lucky boy, no matter what the cost. By the way, uh, here's the power of attorney you gave me. I won't need it anymore. Thanks. You did uh, collect your fee first, I suppose. Mm Mm-hmm. Even 10,000. Yeah. (laughs) It's a good thing I held out a little. You... You what? Sure, I got a little more stashed away. When I shot Renzo, I didn't stop to count the dough to get just what was mine. I just grabbed what there was. It was about 50 grand. I told you not to lie to me. I suppose that had come out in the trial. How could it? Nobody knew how much was there except Renzo, and he wasn't doing any talking. Oh, and this is a poor young businessman who got taken for his life savings. Just a plain, ordinary stick-up. What's the difference? You'd have got me off anyway, wouldn't you? Yes, I... You got me wrong, Hilda. It's like I told you. I'm just a businessman. When I invest money, I get it back. With interest, always. Which reminds me, if you stick all your clients like you stuck me, you must do all right yourself, huh? I get along. Yeah, about 75 grand last year, wasn't it? How do you know? You can find those things out. You see, I've invested in you, too, Hilda. You've invested in me? Yeah, and I've been thinking you ought to have a partner. Oh. Oh, well, what do you know about the law? wasn't thinking about a law, a partnership. Well, what, what are you... I was thinking you and I ought to get married. Uh, oh, oh, no. Oh, no, Tommy. <laughs> Thanks, but that's out of the question. Well, I think you ought to reconsider, Hilda. It may not be much of a proposal, but it's a pretty good proposition. Uh, no, sir, not from where I sit. Well, I wouldn't be too sure about that. But look at it from my point of view first. It would be a good way of getting back my investment with interest. Considering the community property laws in this state, that way I could really set myself up right. Oh? Uh-huh. Now, now look at it from your point of view, see? Your practice is worth 75 grand a year. Suppose you lost it. Suppose you were disbarred. All right, Tommy. All right. Let's have it. Suppose I'd given the sheriff a sealed envelope with a full confession. Suppose I'd said in that confession that you had a copy. Could you prove you hadn't? You didn't. But I did. You said it would take documentary evidence, remember? Something in writing to prove you were defending a man you knew was guilty? Now, uh, 
I I told the sheriff not to open that envelope until I tell him but to. But hang you, oh, you. Oh, Hilda, you know better than that. Now you know they can't try a man twice for the same crime. Hmm. You confessed to killing a man? What's the difference? In my business, it doesn't hurt your reputation to have killed a man. It helps it. No, I'm in the clear, Hilda. You're sort of uh, over the barrel. But I... Marriage to you, I... Now, don't take it too hard. You can get a divorce after a year or so if, uh... If, uh, things are breaking for me the way I think they will. No, no, listen, you've got to... You're going to have to give me time to think about it. I know. You're too fast on your feet, Hilda. You can check with the sheriff if you want to I know, no, I... Believe you. Well, hello, you two. Oh, I... Celebrating? Uh, hello, Sandy. I guess I was a little miffed in court today, Hilda. I should have congratulated you. You did a swell job. So, congratulations to both of you. Thanks, Sandy. <laughs> well, long as you feel like that, Mr. District Attorney, you can congratulate us twice. Twice? Yeah. Hilda has just consented to become Mrs. Tommy Esteman. Oh. Congratulations. I think it was right then with Sandy standing there at the table with that sickly smile on his face. I think it was right then that I decided how Tommy Esteman was going to die. And so I decided that Tommy Esteman would have to die, and then I married him. He didn't bother me. He'd only married me for the money he could squeeze out of me, and... In spite of all the big talk about starting his own business, of course he didn't. And then he hit a streak of bad luck and began losing money, a lot of his and some of mine. But all that was fine. I even encouraged it because I knew that this was the kind of thing that someday was going to give me my chance. And it came about six months later. Tommy had heard about a big no-limit poker game in one of the downtown hotels with a lot of Eastern money behind it, and he wanted to get some of it. I went with him. There were five men seated around the table, and any one of them looked mean enough to rob the church poor box on Christmas Eve. I could see it was going to be a rough game. That was what I wanted. Esteman, huh? Tommy Esteman. That's right. And who's the dame? The lady? My wife. Oh. <laughs> you play too, Miss Esteman? A little. All right, you know what the stakes are? No limit, dealer's choice, draw or start in nothing wild. Okay. Okay. Harry, give him chips. Sure. How much you want, Mr. Esterman? Give me a thousand. A thousand may not last you too long in this game, Mr. Esterman. That's what I came down to find out. Deal them. They played silently and with a deadly intensity. I was breaking about even, but Tommy was losing consistently. One after another, three of the men dropped out until there were only ourselves and Frank and the other one called Harry. I made an excuse to get a glass of water, and I went in the next room and switched the gun that Tommy always carried from his overcoat pocket into my handbag. When I got back, Tommy was still losing, and his face said he didn't like it. What's the matter, Mr. Estimate? You don't like the cards we're giving you? Never mind what I like. Deal them. <laughs> How many you want, Harry? Uh, give me three. Miss Estimate? No, I'm out. Uh, how about you? One card. One. We'll deal with this one. Huh? Who bets? 
A hundred. I'm out. I'll raise you to five. And five more to you. Oh. And five. <laughs> All right, there it is, the work. You know, you got maybe two grand out there, Mr. Estrella. I know what I got out there. You gonna see it or just talk? Money talks. What do you got? Straight, Jack High. No good. Full house. Tens over. Boss. That's all. Let's go, Hilda. You couldn't? You heard me. Just a minute, Mr. Estrella. Just a minute. You got a little tab here. I know I got a tab. I'm good. 7560 bucks to be exact. We'll call it an even seven and a half grand. And we want it now. I told you I'm good for it. I don't happen to have it with That's me. That's no good, Estimate. We want the money now. Will my personal check be all right? You don't have to do that, Hilda. Yeah. yeah I guess so. I'd rather, Tommy. <laughs> Thank you. You know, it's lucky you got a skirt to get behind, Estimate. <laughs> hey, what's the big idea? You ever make a crack like that again, I'll kill you. I couldn't have ordered it better. Tommy was feeling the way all gamblers feel when they've lost and made a fool of themselves. He didn't say anything all the way home. Here, let me hang up your coat. Okay. Hey, my gun's gone. Your gun? Yeah, I had it in my overcoat inside. It's gone. Well, it must have slipped out on the floor down there at the hotel. Yeah, maybe it did. About it. Come on, I'll make some coffee. Yeah, but I, I don't like the idea of guns registered in my name just floating around anywhere. All right, place. so you can go downtown tomorrow and get it, can't you? Huh? Yeah, sure. I can go downtown tomorrow. That's right, Tommy. Tomorrow. I gave him some coffee, and pretty soon he went to bed. I knew, after what I'd put in that coffee, that an earthquake wouldn't wake him, but I listened outside his door for a while anyway until I was sure... And then I started back downtown. It was a long climb up the back stairs of the hotel, but I had to make certain that I wasn't seen. It must have been about 3.30 when I knocked on the door. Uh, yeah, where is it? Frank! Frank! Uh, Are you alone? Yeah. Who is it? Mrs. Esterman. Oh, uh, uh, What do you want? Hey, let me in. Did I forget No, not exactly. Hey. Uh, what is this? No, no. I'm afraid you're just another innocent victim of circumstances, oh, no, Frank. No, wait a minute. I threw the gun on the floor and left, and when I got home, I... I took a sedative myself. It was morning, and the doorbell was ringing like mad. I went down to answer it. It was Sandy Williams. Hello, Hilda. Oh, Sandy, what? Oh, what a strange time to call. Come on, come on. Hilda, I wanted to tell you myself. Tell me what? I've got some bad news. Sandy? What is it? A man named Frank Penrose, a gambler, was killed last night at a downtown hotel. Frank Penrose? Yes. Witnesses have placed you and your husband on the premises during the evening. Well, yes, we were there, but I... He was killed with Tommy's gun. No. 
Oh, no, Sandy, it couldn't. I'm sorry, Hilda, but all the evidence points to it. We're going to have to charge him. Hey, what's going on here? Oh, hello, William. Tommy, mm-hmm. Frank Penrose has been killed. They found your gun. What? Now, look, I, told... I know you're innocent. I know it. You've got nothing to worry about, look, Tommy. Look, Mr. Williams, would you mind if I talk to my wife in private for a minute? Go ahead. Come in here, will you, Hilda? Now, Tommy, oh. just don't say anything in front of him, and don't worry. Hilda, I beat the rap for one I did do. Now they got me for one I but didn't they do. I haven't got you, Tommy. It's all circumstantial. I can prove your alibi myself. You were at home with me. Look, baby, it's a mess. I don't want you to get into but it. But why? Because, because everything's different now. What are you talking about? Don't laugh, Hilda. I guess it's... I've fallen in love with you. Oh, Tommy. Funny, isn't it, huh? I know I've given you a pretty bad time. I'm sorry. I can't take back what's past. But at least I can keep you out of this. Tommy, now don't be crazy. It's a mess. Stay out of it. It'll do you lots more harm than good. You're my wife. They can't make you testify. But I want to testify. No, we'll get somebody else to defend me. No, no, Tommy, I won't let anybody else defend you. But I couldn't let anyone else defend him. I was in too deep now to let anyone else near it, even if I'd wanted to. And I didn't want to. I didn't trust Tommy Eston in his Romeo any more than I did with a gun in his hand. I was going through with it. On schedule. The papers played the case for all it was worth. Two or three extras a day with gushy headlines like Modern Porsche Fights for Life of Mace. Sandy Williams presented his witnesses one after the other, carefully and methodically, and the case against Tommy looked worse and worse. But... Naturally, everyone expected me to pull some sort of surprise out of the hat when it came my turn, and I did. The prosecution rests. Very well. Is counsel for the defense prepared to call her witnesses at this time? Well, the defense will call only one witness, Your Honor. Very well. Is your witness present in the court? She is, Your Honor. The witness is myself. I told a perfectly straight story. That is, it looked like a perfectly straight story. A woman telling the truth as she knew it in defense of the man she loved. I could see the jury lapping up every word of it. When I was finished, I got up from my chair and started to leave the stand. And then it happened. The thing I'd counted on all these many months. The thing that I knew must happen. Just a moment, please, Mrs. Esterman. Uh, yes? I'd like to ask you a few questions. Oh, well... Uh, just a minute, Your Honor. Order, please. Does the defendant wish to address the court? Yeah, uh, yes, Your Honor. I, I thought a wife couldn't be made to testify against her husband. A wife cannot be forced to testify against her husband, Mr. Esterman. But once she has volunteered to testify, she is, of course, subject to cross-examination. Oh, you are prepared for such cross-examination, of course, Mrs. Esterman. Why, uh... Yes, yes, of course. Now, Mrs. Esterman, you have testified that on the night Frank Penrose was murdered, you returned from his room at the hotel where you'd been playing cards and arrived at your home a little after two. Is that correct? Yes. And then somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.30 or quarter to three, you and your husband retired. Yes. Tell me, Mrs. Esterman, did you sleep well that night? Well, yes. You and your husband sleep in the same room or in separate rooms? In... In separate rooms. Then how can you say positively that your husband did not leave the house while you were asleep, return to the hotel, kill Frank Penrose, and return home without your knowledge? Well, I... Remember, I... Mrs. Esterman, you're under oath. 
Can you swear that your husband did not leave the house at any time that night after he had retired? Can you? Answer yes or no. Uh, no. You cannot swear that he didn't leave the house. Now, just one more question, Mrs. Esterman. You have admitted that your husband had a slight quarrel with Frank Penrose. Is that not true? Yes. What did your husband say to him? I'm, I'm not sure. You've heard what another witness testified to. Did he say those words or didn't he? Yes. And what were those words? What were they, Mrs. Esterman? Well, the next time, I'll kill you. That did it. The defendant's own wife and his lawyer had been forced to admit both the opportunity and the motive. That really did it. And all I had to do now was to wait for the verdict. Tony Esterman was as good as in the gas chamber right now. And we waited for the jury. One hour, two. And then they filed back into the courtroom and we were standing on our feet to hear the verdict. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached the verdict? We have. I'll find you the defendant, Thomas Esterman. Guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. Crowding around me, the reporters, the jurors, the foreman of the jury herself coming up to congratulate me. Tell us how you feel, Mrs. Estimate. Did you know all the time you were going to win this case? Did you win this question? All right, all right, boys, please, please, not now, maybe later. Mrs. Estimate, I'm the foreman. I suppose I should say forewoman of the jury. Oh, yes. I just wanted you to know how happy I am that some of us were able to persuade the others that your husband was innocent. As I told them, I knew, I simply knew that a, a woman fighting for the life of the man she loved couldn't be wrong. Thank you. Thank you very much. Finally, we got out of the courtroom. He didn't say anything all the way home, not until we got inside the house. And I suppose I knew it was coming by now. The only thing I didn't know was how. Well, you did your best anyway. I bungled it, Tommy. I you bungled it. You did your best to frame me. Oh, Tommy, no. No, I... you're too smart to fall for a trap like that, baby. You didn't bungle it. You worked it just right. Only thing you forgot to bribe the jury, oh, that's no. all. Tommy, listen to me. You're free. They can't try you again. No, but they can try you. Me? Who else could have killed them? Tommy. What are you doing? I'm phoning your friend, the district attorney. I guess I'll have to collect my investment in you a little different way. Yes. All right. I suppose so. All right, Tommy. There's always this way. Defendant Hilda Warren Esterman, guilty or not guilty? Guilty.
Gracie Kelly starred in William N. Robeson's production of Trial by Jury with Kenny Delmar as Tommy Esterman. Listen. Listen again next week when we bring you another tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Supporting Miss Kelly and Mr. Delmar in Trial by Jury were Shirley Mitchell, Lawrence Dobkin, Byron Kane, Parley Bear, and Jerry Hausner. And now, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. In a moment, Act One of the Lunatic Hour. Starring George Matthews and written especially for suspense by John Robert. It's no good for a man to outlive his guilt. No good. Who knows better than me? Tom Morley. Crazy old Tom, they call me. Coyote. There's more of them critters out on our prairie here. Then there is people in San Ventura. San Ventura, population 638. Trains stop in San Ventura only when we signal them. When I signal them. I'm station master here. This time each year, I'm wanted by trains. By one in particular. Yes, crazy Tom always haunted, all right. Because that's what grief and guilt will do to a man. In fact, don't I see a devil risen before me now? Hear him talking to me? So I'm a conjuration, am I? Answer me, Tom. You are only that. I imagine you. And my voice? I'm only hearing myself. <laughs> You're in bad shape, Tom. Put out your foot. My foot? So I can give you proof that you see what you see. With all my weight. Ow, 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 my foot. Ow. Am I as real to you as the ache in your foot? I can't stand anymore. We've things to recall together, Tom Morley. You know what things? Things like you murdering me. Have you forgotten me all 11.55? How could I ever forget it? And say my name. Say it. Gully Reeves, engineer at the 11.55. You see, I do remember. The rail was split at Jericho Bend, but you didn't single me to stop. No. They found Gully Reeves in a hollow of Jericho Bend with his hand on the throttle still. Still engineer the train, dead as I was. The Van Hale fell into the hollow. But the other cars stood hard on the tracks. And every life spared. It was bad, Gully Reeves, but not as bad as it could have been. It was a lucky night for others, but a black night for me. I died when no man should. When no man should, Gully? On the eve of the day I was to marry. Oh, Jenny. Yes, Jenny. A man can't offer his corpse in marriage. You cost me more than life that black night, Tom. What payment are you here to take from me? Live through this week and see, old man. Then you'll know your punishment. <laughs> devil's apparition can crush your foot. Gully Reeves, whose death was on my hands, 
Gully Reeves had come back from the earth. And I had his promise now. By the end of the week, he'd square accounts with me. I'd know my punishment. I had the devil's own promise for that. Live through the week and see. Huh? Huh? Ah! Ah, open up! It was Will, my stepson, bringing me coffee like every night. <laughs> Why the locked door, Pop? Against prowlers. Here? <laughs> That's a joke. You know, the only prowlers around here are stray dogs and coyotes. Well, there's some coffee for you. Oh, I'm going home to bed now. Uh, Will, wait. Hmm? Help me off with my shoe. The, the left shoe. Oh. Well, the foot swelled up again. Yeah. Huh? Go easy. I have the devil's own pain in my toes. Okay. Wow, it certainly is swollen. Pop, take your sock off and let's see. Mm. That foot didn't only puff up. No? The toes are blue. Pop, that big one looks crushed. A crate fall on it? It wasn't a crate. Well, what was it? It was Gully Reeves. Gully Reeves? He spoke to me. Uh, he spoke to you and invited you out of your mind. Well, son, I'll swear... I saw him like I see but you. Don't call me son. Not when you act and talk like an old fool. I murdered him, he said. At a time when no man should die. Pop. He had a girl. Jenny promised to him. Pop. There's a telegraph message coming in. Well, Pop, if you're up to it. Uh, take it for me, Will, huh? Okay. It says the 11.55's due by in one minute now. It's right on time. Yeah, it's on the button. Oh, wait a minute. Pop, move over. Huh? Make room in the dark for a relative. Make room? There's more to the message. The last half says... I'll be riding the van again. Signed, Gully Reeves. The 11.55. Gully rode the 11.55 that night. Shut up, Pop. He found him in a hollow, sealed in his wrecked van, with his hand dead on the throttle. Stop! 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 It's gone. You know something, Pop? Yes, Will. You're like something contagious. Stick close to you nights and I'll be just as crazy as you. Sorry, son. Just then, with the 11.55 clearing the station. You know what crazy thought flashed through my mind? This is the anniversary week of the wreck of the old 11.55. It would really be one for the books if the... Ghost of Gully Reeves rode the 1155 into another wreck. 
about that, Pop? I had the same thought. to the San Ventura Cemetery. I held my lantern over a headstone. Here lies Gully Reeves. Only, Gully Reeves wasn't lying there. He was risen from the dead. There was every sign that he was risen from the dead. An open grave and an open coffin lid. I could see by the shine of my lantern. Gully wasn't in his coffin. And I could hear his ghost laughing. You came to see with your own eyes whether I was in my coffin or not. That's smart of you, Tom. Gully? On the path. Plain in the light of your lantern. See me? Yes. Live through the week and see. And since you're here to visit the dead, why not take yourself over to Jenny? To Jenny? Five graves from mine. Count five graves from here. Go on. Ask Jenny to tell you how she died. I counted five graves from gullies and stood there with my mind in the dark and my eyes to the ground. An open grave. This one, too. But the lid of the coffin was closed. <laughs> closed, but opening before my eyes. I watched a specter in white rise up. Tom Morley? Are you Tom Morley? I am. Golly sent you to me? Yes. Ask how you died. He said, How did you die? In my wedding gown. I was fitting it to wear for Gully when the news came that night. It was a tragic hour. A black, tragic hour. See my gown, Tom? Your gown? My bridal gown. I wore it to my grave for Gully to admire. Isn't it beautiful? herself back from the grave. My neglect buried Jenny. I sent her to doom instead of her wedding in a gown she was proud of, even in death. And Gully, well, he kept his promise as I knew he'd do. Rolled the 11.55 for the anniversary week. And always with a message for me at 11.54, just one minute before. I'll ride the van of the 11.55, Tom Morley. Look to the rail at Jericho Bend. Look to the rail. Look to the rail. Gully meant to ride the 1155 to his death again. Ah! Stop it, train! Stop! Stop it, train! 
Morley, station master at San Ventura. Operator, terrible thing. The 1155. Operator. Operator. Will? What's got you going now? Will, you telephone for me. I, I, I can't make myself understood. Okay, give me the phone. What am I to say? Say? Outside what you saw. The 1155 wrecked. Oh, come off it, Pop. Now, who'd be interested in hearing that? Who'd be interested? Well, do you know what you're saying? Pop, you're a maniac. You worked hard at becoming one, and you finally made it. What's all this malarkey about the 1155? Why, why, it's a wreck. Gully Reeves, a ghost engineer on a ghost train. Sure, Pop, sure. Look, the wall clock's behind you. You see what time it says? 11.54. It's only 11.54. Right. Here's the 11.55 now. Right on time. Your 11.55, Pop. Crashed in your head. I needed a saner mind than mine to take me in hand, to show me what was real and what was imagined. Mr. McHale, the town supervisor, I pleaded with him and he came back to San Ventura Cemetery. This hallucination, Tom, the engineer Gully Reeves, risen from the grave, and the late Jenny Ives standing up in her coffin. How long has all that been bothering you? Ten years, Mr. McHale, since the day Gully was killed. Mm -hmm. And the spirit visitations? Oh, only these few nights this week, this anniversary week. Anniversary? The wreck was ten years ago this week. Oh, I see. Uh, which of the two graves? Over here is Gully Reeves. This grave. This grave? It says Gully Reeves on the gravestone. I'll hold the lantern to it. Do we see different things, Mr. McHale? Well, I... I see an open grave. An open grave and an open coffin. Jenny is five graves from this, Mr. McHale. Count five graves. Five. I... I've counted five. I'm an old man and I've lost my reason... But not you, Mr. McHale. You're the slickest mine in San Ventura. The town supervisor. Hallucinations, yes. I'm, I'm sick with them. Sick with grief and guilt. But not you. Tell me we see different things. Maybe... Maybe not, Tom. Maybe we see the same things. This grave now, Mr. McHale. It's right and proper. Like a grave must be so a soul can rest. No, Tom. I... I can't say that it is. You can't. What do you see? Look, the grave is unnatural as the first. And you have hallucinations, too. The grave is open and the coffin empty, like the first. Tom Morley! Tom Morley! Is it Jenny calling to you, Tom? You hear it, too? Yes. I stood in my bridal gown and didn't move. 
My heart swelled up and then it stopped. I stopped it so I could be with Gully Reeves. It was a bad time to die. Such a bad time when living could be so good. Mr. McHale. Yes, Tom. You heard what she said. Every word. Every uncanny word. And did you also see her? Yes. Like like a white mist and long flowing hair and no flesh that I could see. I do have your hallucinations, Tom. I'm distressed to hear that. You the best mind in San Ventura. I say only what I saw. What was it that Gully promised you? Another wreck of the 1155. Gully would once more ride the van into the hollow of Jericho Bend. In the morning, Mr. McHale put his hallucinations to rest. McHale was such a man. Things had to make sense to him. I ordered an arrest, Tom. The arrest of your stepson, Will. You arrested Will? I'm sure he's behind this and others in with him. Looting graves and dressing up the masquerade as ghosts. Why would Will go against me? To drive you into the madhouse. Even to drive you to your death. I can't believe it. I know it's a great shock to you, but the boy hates you, Tom. Why does he? Well, unbalanced as you've been these ten years, an unsteady, brooding man. Will's mother died to shut her eyes to you, Tom. She couldn't stand any more of a life with you. The boy thinks this. You're saying that Will blames me for Margaret, for his mother's passing? Yes, and there's your house and land. With you gone, it'll pass to him. There's a profit in hate for Will. I've reasoned it out. Now, let's see what the ghosts will do. There was a message that night, that last anniversary night, ten years to the day of the old wreck. It said, look to the rail at Jericho Bend. This time I would. There would be no negligence this time. I saw what I hadn't seen ten years before. The rails. The rails were split. Once again, the rails were split. Stop the train. I had to stop the train. This time I knew to stop the train. My signal lantern. I waved it. Waved it high in the air so Gully could see it. High, high. Stop! Stop in the name of mercy! I'd won this time. I'd stopped the train. I'd won! I awoke from a long sleep in the outdoors with someone standing over me. Mr. McHale. Yes, it's me. Did I faint? Died, I thought, these last ten minutes, Tom. Hardly a pulse to you, hardly a breath. Like your heart had stopped. Stopped? The 1155, Mr. McHale. The 1155. 1155 came and went. Came and went? You signaled it to stop, and it stopped. It's gone now. The train can't wait on an hallucinating old man. But the rail at Jericho Bend, it was split. I saw that with my own eyes. The train took the bend with nothing wrong. But I saw it. Come, I'll show you. Here at the bend, come see. I'm here, Tom, waiting to be shown. Oh, the rail is fine now. What I saw, I didn't see. Except in your mind. Yes, in my mind. And what I see now, only I see. No? Now what? Even now, I see things the devil directs me to see. I see things invisible to you. What do you think you see now? In the ground there in the hollow, if you have eyes for the dark, Mr. McHale, I see a body, a lonely body in the night. <laughs> but you don't see the dead, Mr. McHale. It's only for me to see. No. 
we see the same things again, Tom. A dead man? You see a dead man, too? A dead man, yes. Scully Reeves dead where he died before. No, Tom, not Gully. We've a strange corpse in this one. A man who died tonight. Tonight? Blood soaked in his clothes and in the dirt. See? And still bleeding. The old dead don't bleed, Tom. And the old dead don't wear police handcuffs. Police handcuffs, you say? See? On his wrists and a bullet hole in his head. See? This one was shot to death. I'll telephone the coroner to come for the murdered man. Oh, operator. Mr. McHale, wait. Wait with the telephone. It's Gully on the wireless again. Oh, Gully, is it? Let's not go through that again. I'll take the message, Tom. What is the message, Mr. McHale? An awakening. I'm beginning to understand things. And I owe your stepson, Will, an apology. An apology to Will? Yes, the looting of the graves and all that dressing up to make you see ghosts. It wasn't Will's doing. His scheme against you, as I'd reasoned. Will had nothing to do with it. I was wrong there, dead wrong. The message told you that? No, but I know that now. I put it all together. It was a message from a detective who was on the 1155 tonight. He lost a prisoner he was escorting to the state penitentiary. Chip Stavago, a convicted man. The message says we're to look for a short man, bald, wearing a dark suit and handcuffs. Handcuffs? That's the murdered man out there. Now listen carefully, Tom. This pair, Floyd Maxson and his girl Sally, they had worked up a scheme to board the 1155 and seize a prisoner being taken to the state pen. One Chip Stavago... They were out to seize DeVago from under the nose of the detective accompanying him. Seize DeVago and murder him. Which they did. How is it clear so far? Clear. All right. San Ventura was the place they picked to stop the 1155, climb aboard, and snatch DeVago. You were to stop the train for them, Tom. That's how your hallucinations came about. And the killers, Maxon and his girl Sally were the source of your hallucinations. Now, they obviously knew about you. How you felt about that wreck of ten years ago. How it preyed on your mind. Your sense of personal guilt about it. How they worked on you all this anniversary week when you were most susceptible. They played on your imagination. Made you hear voices. See ghosts. All to get you to stop that train tonight. Mr. McHale. Yes, Tom? That story you were telling me about people scheming against my sanity. I'm asking you to tell it to me again. Sure, but not tonight, Tom. Your mind's been burdened enough for one night. Tomorrow, when the anniversary week is over and Gully Reeves isn't in your thoughts. Tomorrow, Tom, we'll go over the whole thing again tomorrow. Suspense. You've been listening to The Lunatic Hour, starring George Matthews, and written especially for Suspense by John Robert. Suspense is produced and directed by Fred Hendrickson. Music supervision by Ethel Huber. Heard in tonight's story were Les Damon, Donald Buca, Rosemary Rice, and Dick Keith. Listen again next week when we bring you With Murder in Mind. Written by Erwin Lewis, 
Another tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. 